Acts chapter 13. It's hard to believe on Wednesday. We're, we're in, about to enter into March. You know, we, we do Wednesday nights. And we start in August. You know, we take two months. We take June and July off. We start back in August. Usually the other guys teach, and I start teaching something in September. And it, it just seems like yesterday we really started with Acts chapter 3. It's going by so fast. But uh, it, it really does. We're not gonna, my goal was not to finish Acts this year. It is to get through chapter 15 and um, <coughs> that pivotal chapter. In there, <clears throat> we left off, where did we leave off? At the end of verse uh, four, three. So verse four says this. So that is Barnabas and Saul or Paul. Having been sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they're going to take their first journey. Cyprus is uh, actually um, a place that, uh, that Barnabas was from. And uh, that's actually his home area. And so they're going to they're gonna head off there. That's always a good thing, kind of head off towards home, where you're from. It says they reached uh, Salamis, and they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John as their helper. So, you know, John, John came with them. John Mark is the, the cousin of uh, <clears throat> Barnabas. So, yeah, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Um, we're going to see later that John Mark ends up leaving. And uh, it's always interesting, you know, about that fact. We'll talk about it more when we get to that part. But they're, they're all together. They're, they're starting off. This is new territory. Now, there's been others, uh, undoubtedly, who have gone and shared the gospel, as I've shared. These aren't the first group of guys to go somewhere and preach Jesus. But as I said, this is the first group sent from a church, the church being the church in Antioch. This is really the beginning of Paul's journeys and his systematic approach to sharing the gospel with the intentionality that he has. So it becomes pretty important. And it's the first that we have recorded. Um, they went through the whole island as far as Paphos, and they found the magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which means basically son of salvation or son of deliverance. Uh, Jesus, common name, Yeshua, Yahshua, Hosea, common. And so they found this guy. He's, he's a, a Jewish, and, and, and they make sure they understand he's a false prophet. <clears throat> and we may say and think that <clears throat> being a magician as such was, was outlawed in Jewish life. But it doesn't seem that this part that they followed very closely. Um, there's just, uh, he, he, he was a, a charlatan, a, a crook in essence. And uh, what we find out about him was this. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. He's a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So he was the proconsul. Now, I never remember and get all of this correct, but, but the Romans divided up their different areas into certain styles of governance. The more volatile area was directly under the oversight of the emperor who put people in charge with military. That was the area of Judea and, and Galilee. The place where Jesus hung was always... Uh, that area, because of the volatility of the Jews, you see the Roman soldiers there, you see the troops, um, you know, the, the, the governor there, you know, Pilate was there, he was under the authority of, uh, of the emperor, um, Tiberius, even though they had, you know, the king there, Herod and all that, and he had certain power. I mean, it was just a harsher structure. 
provinces that were more peaceful and were in better alignment with Rome uh, were really under the jurisdiction of the Senate. Now, the emperor could take it whenever he wanted, the strong ones. But they usually had, as their leader, a proconsul. Still kind of a governor. They just had different technical names. And that's what we see here. The name of this man, Sergius Paulus, there's several listed outside of Scripture. You know, that's fairly a common name. Um, it says he was an intelligent man. And, and the indication for Luke, basically, when Luke compliments a man like this, it means he's highly thought of. Um, so he was a man who understood. And probably the intent of that is to show us that, that the false teacher, the magician, the magician uh, didn't have any real sway over him. He served under him. He had some sort of part in his administration. But it's to let us know from Luke's perspective that uh, Paulus was not taken in by this guy. He wasn't misled or fooled by him. In fact, it says he wanted to hear a word of God. He wanted to know what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. And uh, he summoned them to come and to teach. But Elimus, the magician, that's this guy's name, Bar-Jesus. And so he, they used both names. That's how his name is translated. It was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so immediately what you have from the very beginning then is you have this opposition to the word of God from this guy who's a false teacher. And so let me just kind of spend a minute or two right here. We ought to understand that the history of Christianity is always a history of people conflicting, people contesting the true word of faith, that people have always done it. What we experience today is nothing new. Um, and so the fact that you have someone in conflict is, is something that, that's important that matters, and how you deal with it matters. And it always makes a difference whether that, that person in conflict is inside the church or outside the church, if they're outside the church, are they claiming to be a believer or not? I mean, all those things add up. Now, here you have a guy who was a, a charlatan from the very beginning. But the important thing is to understand, they have to be deal with, especially when Paul and Barnabas are trying to make a direct appeal to Paulus. And understand, by, by appealing to the proconsul. If they can help him come to faith or at least be positive towards the faith, it makes it easier to make great inroads into that area. So Saul, who was known as Paul. Now, by the way, from this point on, Paul is always called Paul. Saul, I mean, so Luke's making the transition away from Saul to Paul. And by the way, they had multiple names. It's not, it's not uncommon uh, back then the way they did their names. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He fixed his gaze on him. It's the idea is he stared him down, which I bet the gaze of Paul was a, was a frightening gaze. And he said this, you are full of deceit and fraud. <laughs> you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That is a pretty harsh comment from Paul in if you know anything about Paul and you read all the stuff that he writes, he was not beyond making harsh comments. He said, you're full of deceit and fraud. The word deceit means to be full of trickery. 
It is the idea, obviously, of deception. It's, it's what magicians do. They have you look one way, they do something else. So he was intentionally deceiving. Fraud is a moral concept. Being a person completely of untrustworthy character. He says, you are not to be trusted in any capacity. He's saying this in front of the pro-council and others. And he says, you, you're not to be trusted. You are, in fact, the son of the devil. You are related to the devil. I've, uh, I've never called anybody the son of a devil. I've called them other things close, probably, but never that. And that's, that's a pretty harsh thing when you think about it. Um, and yet it's true. He says you're trying to take the righteous path and to make it crooked or to deform it. And so he's calling him out on what he does. Sometimes we just have to be honest in situations. And, and if we're going to advance the gospel, um, while we may always want to be loving in a sense, that sometimes we have to be blunt and, and forceful. Um, there have been times in, in ministry where we've encountered something that was false. Somebody was leading people astray. We um, are being deceptive sometimes within the church. And, and, you know, I really had to deal with it. I dealt with it one time in, in Bridgeport on a Sunday morning um, uh, with the guy working in the sound booth. No offense to the sound booth people. Y'all are usually good guys, but sometimes y'all can be a little, you know, full of the devil, I guess. But I, I remember he, he, was, he, he was saying something vocalizing about the people singing who were rehearsing uh, before the service. And man, it, you know, I was really ticked. And so, you know, I, with righteous indignation, it wasn't about me, it's about what he was doing to them. I led into him pretty good. And uh, uh, sometimes you really got to do that to people who are disrupting the fellowship. If someone's going to damage the church, hurt the church, damage the gospel, you can't say, well, you know, we need to love them, be kind to them. The loving thing is to be firm. Paul, in the last book he writes, reminds us that we need to take the word of God and use it and, uh, to preach and sometimes to correct people. In one of the last books, in 1 Timothy, he reminds us that, you know, what the word of God is for. He reminds us that there is correcting and rebuking. Peter does the same thing. We need to take truth and always use it to confront that which is false. He does this, and he says to him, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. I often thought how cool it would be to be able to strike someone with blindness. I've asked God for that ability. He's never given it to me. But that's God. That, you don't, that, that would get people's attention. If you, if you were acting up, and I'm like, you're going to be blind for a while, and they were blind. That'd be pretty cool. Notice the result. The pro-council believed when he saw what had happened. And he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. The amazement was at what Paul taught. But the whole, he didn't just believe because Paul struck the guy blind. 
But in other words, he took the whole thing into consideration. And so while the, you know, the magician, the false prophet, tried to thwart the gospel, Paul turned it into an opportunity for the gospel to be successful. From that point, it says in verse 13, Paul and his companions put out to sea. Now, Paul, at the start of this journey, Barnabas was lifted first. Now, Paul. And they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And, Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is one of those points about, we don't know why John left. Later on, uh, in chapter 15, you know, we, we see that Paul considered what he did desertion. Let me just say this. And when they go to the second journey, Barnabas, you know, wanted to take John with him, and Paul said no. And it, that caused Barnabas and Paul to part ways. Having said that, at some point, Paul and Mark reconciled. Because in the last letter, the last words that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, come to me and go get Mark and bring him with you. Luke's here. I want you here and Mark. So, as Paul approached death, the three people he wanted with him was Luke, Timothy, and John Mark. So at some point, they got together. And there's a whole lot of lessons and sermons about reconciliation and growth and all that. This is the Mark, that both the gospel of Mark. Uh, it is universally understood, really, that, by that. It was believed he was a close companion of Peter. And he uh, got uh, a lot of his information on Mark from Peter. We're not told why John left. Some think, uh, John Mark, some think that he left because Paul was now in charge and not Barnabas. That seems, eh, I think Barnabas could have helped him through it. Uh, maybe he was sick. Maybe he was concerned about lays ahead. The most, probably the most plausible thing was that he just was weary or scared or timid and didn't want to take the journey. He would have been young. Maybe he was too young to go on the trip to begin with. Maybe some of the responsibility goes with Barnabas and Paul to bring him to begin with. He was serving as an attendant of some sort. In other words, he was doing something to kind of meet their needs, whatever that capacity to meet their needs might have been. But the indication probably would be, if if I had to put all the different pieces together from all the story of John, Mark, and all that goes with it, and take all the passages... I would would tend to think he was a little immature, a little inexperienced, and the daunting nature of the task was too much for him. Because he leaves, not when they're on the island, they they may not even know where they were going, but he leaves when they get ready to go into Turkey, or what they called Asia Minor. The journey now is going to go forth into a very rough and rugged region. Um, We're told that... uh, that they went to Perga and they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and they sat down. So they, they went into this rough area of, of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey. Uh, it is sometime along this trip that Paul gets ill. The, the illness is further um, explained in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians were written to the churches from this first journey. The the, the view, the timeline that I tend to accept, uh, and many other, and there's some debate about when Paul wrote um, Galatians and all that, but I believe that after his first journey, and I'll deal with this a lot more when we get to chapter 15, after his first journey, 
people from uh, Jerusalem went and tried to, to force the Gentile believers to become Jews first. Paul deals with that and had some success right after he left. Paul writes the book of Galatians as he is on his way to Jerusalem to deal with what we call the Jerusalem Conference, where they straighten that out. So this is some pretty, but in, in that book of Galatians, which he writes shortly, right after this trip, Paul talks about some of the things he dealt with. And so we know that somewhere along the way, Paul got pretty ill. Um, there's various speculations. One of the best is that he may have gotten some type of malaria that really permanently disabled him. But he went into the synagogue and uh, he went there to teach. Verse 15 says, after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, say it. So they had a synagogue service. We know a little bit about synagogue services from Acts and then from one of the other epistles. I forget which one. They would, they would pray. They would read from the first five books of the Bible. They would read then from the law. And after that, they would normally have some type of exhortation or a sermon. If there was a visiting dignitary or someone, they would call upon them. They didn't have a pastor as such. Different people, oftentimes, even within the synagogue, would stand up to give an exhortation. I cannot possibly imagine what it would look like if every week we just called on somebody sitting out there, why don't you come on up and share a word with us about what God's laid on your heart? That would be chaos to us. That was how they did it. I would never do it that way. I would never ask anyone to come up and share what God has laid on their heart. I've had people actually come up to me at invitation and say, could I share a word with the church? And I say, no, you may not. And I am very blunt because I have no idea what you're going to say. I haven't said, well, the Lord has laid this on my heart. And I said, brother, there's just one problem. He hadn't laid it on mine. And until he lays it on mine, it ain't going to happen. And it's just a completely different world. But that's okay. Now, if Paul was here, it might be different. And if someone of Paul's magnitude is here, I could say, well, maybe I might let them say a word. So Paul stood up. And he motioned with his hands. And then he does, in a very classic style, he gives a bit of a recounting of the people of Israel. He says, men of Israel, and you who fear God. So notice, there were two types of people there. There were Jews, and there were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, or at least were worshipers of God. In the synagogue, not in the temple. The temple, there were places Gentiles could go, but in the synagogue... They allowed Gentiles who would worship Yahweh, worship the Lord, to come be a part of their service. They would never let, probably let them speak, but unless they had fully converted and gone through circumcision and everything, but they were all there. We see here now the beginning or the first instance of the style that Paul would use wherever he went, whenever he went to some place, he would always start in the synagogue, as much as he, if they had a synagogue. When he went to Philippi, they didn't have one. But if they had a synagogue, he would go there, and if he could, he would share. And then after that, he would actually go to the Gentiles. But oftentimes, he would have success in the synagogue with the Gentiles who had begun to worship God. 
they were already open to movement. They were already open to, they had already left paganism behind. So they, you know, they had come to Judaism. So the idea of taking it one step further, follow Christ was not a big deal to them. And oftentimes that led to his success and wherever he would go. He said, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifting hand, he led them out. So right now, I'm doing a lot of study on uh, the book of Exodus. Because in the summer, my uh, summer series is from the first uh, 11 or 12 chapters of Exodus. And then on um, Deep Fry, if you're new, Deep Fry is every summer on a Friday night from about 6.30 to 10. I teach either a book or a lengthy passage or something. Last year, I taught James. Before that, I taught the book of Revelation. If you want to know what I taught in Revelation, you can go on our website. It's all there under archives. And, and um, uh, it says, deep fry, hint, I don't tell you anything about the end times. So don't get excited thinking I'm going to give you dates, times, places. <laughs> the only dates, times, and places I give you are historical. Um, but I'm going to do chapter, I think, 13 of Exodus through the Ten Commandments. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm going on the sermon series up to the death of the firstborn. And then on deep fry, I'm going to take it from there. Now, I'm just telling you this because I've done a ton of study. And so it's interesting. I like how, how, how he puts that uh, he made the people great. By great, he means numerous because they were slaves. And that's what he means. He made them numerous. He chose them. They went there. And, he, and he, then he led them out. Notice, he didn't mention Moses. He didn't say Moses led them out. No, God led them out. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. In other words, he led them out. He's, everybody understands what he's saying. <coughs> is that they rebelled. And so for 40 years, they wondered. I love the phrase, God put up with them. That's a good biblical phrase. I, you know, sometimes you forget there's some really good, that's a southern phrase that I put up with that person. But, it, you know, but, you know, but it's also a biblical phrase. It's a southern biblical phrase. Because they were in South Galatia when this happened. That's why. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed the land as an inheritance. This took about 450 years. So in Deuteronomy, I think 7.1, he talks about the seven nations of Canaan that he destroyed. I bet you wonder what those seven nations are, don't you? I'm going to see if I can tell them to you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I remember that. I think you should show some mild appreciation <laughs> of the difficulty of remembering all that. Look, applaud. It's just, I just, you just need to, in your heart, say, that's pretty impressive. So I don't expect much. Just the acknowledgement. That's, that's pretty good. Some of you are probably fact-checking me, aren't you? You're in Deuteronomy 7-1 right now, aren't you? Go ahead. Then apologize when you're through. Preacher, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to fact-check you. If I'm wrong, just keep quiet. <laughs> now, the 450 years, that's an approximation. Don't, we get all bent out of shape on the years. You know, you notice how they round off a lot? Do you think everything that happened in biblical history always ends with a zero? 
450 years, 400 years in Egypt, 40 years wandering, about 10 years it took for Joshua to conquer uh, as much as he could the promised land. So it took, took a period of time. He's saying, so they were, they were there. Long, it's 450 years. You, just, you go back 450 years ago, that's a long time. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. He's, he's reliving the history God gave. Then he asked, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And then he removed him. Why did he remove him? Because of his sin and disobedience. And then it says, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of David, David, uh, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. It's an amazing thing. You think about, I've said this many times, you think about David's sin. Think about, by our standards, what David did was a lot worse initially than what Saul did. Saul made a sacrifice. He didn't kill everybody he was supposed to kill. David committed adultery and then killed the husband of the woman he slept with. By our world, David seems to be a whole lot worse. Now, understand, Saul would go on to do some horrendous things. But God looks at life differently. David paid for his sin. Oh, man, he paid. But the difference between Saul and David was that Saul did what he did in opposition to doing what God wanted him to do. Now, understand, David didn't do what God wanted him to do, but the sin, David said, I've sinned against you and you only in Psalm 51. But David never not worshipped God. He never had a point when he wasn't seeking God. When David sinned, we're no, we know his relationship with God was strained. It was hard. Saul never cared. David was after God's own heart because David always sought God, even when he sinned. You realize that every time Saul sinned, not one time did he ever truly seek after God. He sought after Samuel's blessing. He asked Samuel to seek after God for him. You go read Psalm 51 at some point after Nathan confronted David about his sin. That's one of the most heartfelt confessions of sin you could ever imagine. David was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to build God a temple. I was reading about that today in the book of Chronicles. So God says this, from the descendants of this man, according to the promise of God, or, or uh, Paul says this, he has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. In other words, God promised that the Messiah would come from David. He sent. That's what happened. Then he mentions John, the one who baptized. He said, John proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So, Paul is pointing out in the synagogue that he's giving, he's reciting the history, the briefly, of God working to deliver his people. And then God making a promise of the ultimate deliverance that was going to come from David, a man after his own heart. And then he sets the table for Jesus, which we'll see next week. And in doing so, he reminds them that John, who was the one who came likened unto Elijah, fulfilling the promise made in Malachi chapter 4, that guy said, the one is coming. And he points to Jesus. So what you have Saul, Paul doing here to a largely Jewish audience is taking their faith, their history, their understanding of Scripture, and using it to create the margin necessary 
to share Jesus, how Jesus will fulfill all that was promised to them. And so you see here in these verses we looked at, Paul, on his journey, having success, confronting opposition, and then laying straight out the path that is to come to share the gospel. And we'll see more of that next week. And so, uh, we're through. If you have kids in Awana, please, oh please, go get them. <laughs>